Join us now for Education Matters, a weekly look at the real stories in education across North Carolina. Welcome to Education Matters, presented by the Public School Forum of North Carolina. I'm Keith Poston. Two reports have just been released examining our state's Opportunity Scholarship Program. The program, launched in 2014, provides taxpayer-funded vouchers for families to send their children to private, primarily religious schools. One study looked at the academic achievement of some of the students who left public schools to attend private schools using these state-funded vouchers. The other report looked at the curriculum that's being used by some of the private voucher schools. We're fortunate to have the authors of both studies on hand, and we're going to discuss their findings on today's show. As we do each week before we tackle our main topic, we open with our headlines, a quick scan of ed education headlines across North Carolina and the U.S. The much-anticipated ruling from the North Carolina Supreme Court over who's in charge of the state's public schools was handed down last Friday, and both State Superintendent Mark Johnson and the State Board of Education are claiming victory. In a 6-0 decision, the Supreme Court upheld a lower court ruling that the 2016 state law that transferred some of the state board's powers to the superintendent is constitutional. Superintendent Johnson said the ruling means he's in charge now. Not so fast, said the state board. They say the board has the constitution supervised this public school system. Things you have to work out. Controversial bill to allow four urban communities outside Charlotte to create and fund charter schools for their residents is now state law. House Bill 514, passed last week, was introduced as a local bill and therefore does not need to go to the governor. Opponents, including Charlotte Mecklenburg schools, say the law will lead to more schools in these four predominantly white communities based on separate schools. This is a parent and CMS is not a low name. of new education the assembly in weeks of this short session. One requires that all public schools post new signs in a prominent place that reads, In God We Trust, as well as the state motto. Another bill requires school systems to su submit reports that they are still teaching cursive writing. And a new bill would spend $100,000 to get reports from every school on what movies are shown during class, how many minutes they were, and for what purpose. Finally, the General Assembly quickly overrode Governor Roy Cooper's veto of the state budget bill. The governor vetoed saying it shortages education and environmental concerns in favor of tax cuts. Republicans are the budget and significant and other priorities. Now, you can always visit the public forum at ecforum.org on education matter and more about each headlines as well as all the topics. As I said at the top of the show, today's focus is on North Carolina's private school voucher program and two reports that were just released. Up first is a report from researchers at NC State University, and joining us are the two of the researchers. We have uh, Dr. Anna Igalate uh, from NC State University, and we have Dr. Trip Stallings. Doc, uh, Dr. Stallings is the Director of Policy Research at the Friday Institute, also at NC State University. I should point out there was a third researcher, Stephen Porter, um, who, was, who also worked on it. He's not here with us, so he misses out on getting one of these cool Education Matters marks. So, all right, look, I'm going to start with you, um, um, Tripp. The, um, what did you, um, this is a study you wanted to do. I mean, you've, you've actually, this is actually in a series of reports around the Opportunity Scholarship right. Program. I think it's safe to say this one's gotten the most attention. What did you hope to accomplish with this particular study? You know, we have, uh, for a lot of our work, uh, uh, one goal is always to, you mentioned at the, tar at the start of the show, a lot of the different policies that are uh, moving through the legislature right now. 
we like to follow those every year and see which ones we think are of most value for us to explore so we can provide more information for policymakers, for citizens. And Opportunity Scholarship was one of those. So one of our purposes was to provide more and better information about uh, the program and its impacts. A second piece, though, which is a little bit different from a lot of the other studies we do, I'm not sure how uh, much your viewers are aware that this legislation that, that created the Opportunity Scholarship also uh, required uh, a, a serious and significant evaluation. Uh, so part of our work was also to demonstrate how much could be done and how much could not be done to meet the requirements as stated in the legislation. Now, Dr. Nick, I'll tell you, I mean, he, um, uh, uh, Trip Stallings just mentioned that it required a, a, a significant evaluation, mm -hmm. but I think a lot of folks, um, um, you know, and, and frankly, including the organization that I lead, has, has said there hasn't been a lot. And there, in fact, you pointed out in your own study, there were some challenges. Do we know um, enough yet? So thanks Trip, for, for setting up the, the reason for why we did the study. It's a $28 million program. There's over 7,000 students involved right now. And like Trip mentioned, the legislation that created it called for an evaluation of learning gains and losses of students that receive the scholarships compared to similar public school students. So we um, were eager to, to evaluate the program as part of a broader evaluation effort. Our previous reports have looked at things like the hidden costs that parents are facing, um, private school principals' reasons for being a part of the program. Um, we set out to evaluate the learning gains and losses as a pilot evaluation. We don't intend for this to be the final word on the program by any means. Um, we encountered some significant barriers along the way. We were very pleased to be able to document those barriers. Before releasing this report, we were part of a state task force that described some of those barriers, but it was really only by going through the process of conducting the study ourselves that we were able to fully comprehend just how significant those were. Well, let's, let's, let's dig, dig into a little bit of the barriers because look, there's been a lot of attention on this. I mean, um, editorials, I think there's one in the, the Raleigh News and Observer today about some of, the, uh, some of the, what they see as the shortcomings of the study. One of the barriers that you point out in your own report is the, the inability to get access to the schools that are participating in this. And, and, and because of that, um, and, and we can, I've got some numbers we'll pull up on the screen, but half of the, you had 250 students at the end that you, from the private schools, from Brent, right? I think you had more than that, but I think you ended up studying right. about 250. Half of the schools that were in your study were Catholic schools, um, um, but they only make up 10% of, of, of schools in the Opportunity Scholarship Program. And so I think some of, the, um, some of the criticism has been how is this representative of Opportunity Scholarships when Catholic schools are kind of, they've been around for a long time and they had kind of have a, a sort of a different um, history. That's right. So it, it is not representative in the sense that we would like in order to represent what uh, happens across the state with the Opportunity Scholarship. Uh, so it, the significant barrier that we had to overcome that you're referencing is the fact that there's no compulsion for any of these schools at this point to participate. And we should be clear, too, that that means there's no compulsion for private schools or for public schools. And in order to do a, a study of this nature, we really need participation from both. So we had to rely quite a bit on creating relationships with a number of schools in the end. I think it was close to 30 or 40 in the public and private uh, sector so that we could at least have some access to some students for some testing. 
As a result, though, we don't have the, uh, the ability to say that we were able to capture a snapshot that represents the students uh, across the program, and that is a significant limitation. Right. And Keith, there's two parts to that. The private schools, we were very grateful that they volunteered to be a part of the study. They had no incentive right. or mandate to do that. That was very much um, a public service for them to do that. Similarly, with the public schools, we coordinated with four public school districts to pull this off. Um, and also at the student level, these were kids who were opting into additional testing for no, you know, no gain for themselves. Right. This was very much because we um, created a document that described the purpose of the study and we circulated that among the private school associations, um, among private schools that we reached out to directly ourselves and also allowed um, an advocacy group to share that document um, to let people know what, what it was we were trying to accomplish. Right, now, and look, since you brought it up, you, you, you mentioned the advocacy group and I'm gonna, I'm, I wanna bring this, um, I wanna ask you about this. Um, so our viewers may be familiar with who they are. Parents for Educational Freedom of North Carolina is the state's largest, most influential well-funded, you know, they, they basically led the charge to create this program in North Carolina. Uh, Daryl Allison was the longtime head. He just recently left. He's now running um, uh, in a big position with Betsy DeVos's uh, uh, group, American um, Federation for Children. You had to rely on them to give you access to the schools, and so I, or to help get schools to participate. Look, I mean, don't they have a vested interest in, in essentially funneling schools to you that present it in the best light? I mean, as, as researchers, um, respect your credentials. Does, doesn't that sort of fundamentally affect the, the outcomes? Well, it's like we said earlier, it's the same point from earlier. We know that we don't have a representative sample of schools, and so we try to make that very clear in the report and in coming and talking to, to you and other folks like right. you about this very thing. Uh, so we know that going in. Uh, we also are able, though, to uh, introduce a number of statistical controls at the student level to help mitigate for some of that. Right. Is it enough to completely remove those problems? No, and that's why we make it very clear that even though the study helps move us forward in our understanding of the program and our understanding of the limitations for evaluation, we in no way want to make uh, the, the implication that it is uh, comprehensive. In that I mean, uh, and other, now look, and yeah. you know, others have, right? I mean, I, sure. I was looking, I mean, there's, you've got, <laughs> I've got the whole list, obviously right. advocates on both sides but I mean right. the John Locke Foundation they mm -hmm. said this is this proves that children learn more and their families are happier you got this is these students get a little bit of a stretch we um, we use a, a matching model so that we can say with confidence that for the subsample of students that we were able to study that their achievement was higher um, compared to similar students and, and the similar students are matched in terms of prior test scores right. prior discipline records demographics and regions of the state um, but we have been very transparent that this report is not generalizable in that sense. We cannot speak to the average experience of an Opportunity Scholarship user in the state, and we've been very clear about that. All right, last word, just a few seconds. Trip, what do we need? What do we need? I mean, we can get this data if it was required, right, by the by law. So yeah, let's put this in context too, Keith. It's it's what we need for this program, but it's what we need for any. Uh, significant policy change like this uh, that comes through legislation. We need the ability to have better transparency of the data necessary to meet uh, our needs or anyone's needs as researchers or evaluators to truly understand the impact on a number of different levels. Right. We need for the rules that govern the program to match the requirements for the evaluation. And right now there's a significant conflict in the, the legislation itself between what's expected to be evaluated and what's evaluable. Yeah, that's a very good point. Thank you both for joining us. I think uh, uh, we'll have the link to your full report on our website, so we encourage people, viewers, to want to learn more to, to look it up. So thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much. Thank you. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion about private school vouchers where they look at the curriculum. But before we go to break, see if you can answer this question. In 2017-2018, North Carolina budgeted $54.8 million for private school vouchers. How much does the state plan to spend on this program on an annual basis by 2027?
Welcome back to Education Matters. Did you correctly answer D, $145 million? Uh, the General Assembly has set recurring new investments of $10 million each year for the next 10 years until it reaches $145 million annually. annually. To give you a, 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 a comparison, that's about the same amount that we pay all of the state's principals in North Carolina uh, in a year. We're going to continue our discussion about the Opportunity Scholarship Program, this time focusing on the curriculum. And we have two wonderful guests. We have um, Bonnie Bouchard. Bonnie is the study author um, that we're going to talk about this report today and a member of the Education Action Team for the League of Women Voters. She's in the Lower Cape Fear. Sitting next to her is Dr. Mary Kolick. Uh, uh, Dr. Kolick is with the League of Women Voters of North Carolina. She's the team lead for education. And I should also point out that uh, Dr. Kolick is a, a former uh, school superintendent uh, in Connecticut. So uh, thank you, Ben. She decided to come down here to North Carolina as, as fast as she could. So we, we, we're glad to have you here. All right, I'm going to start with you. Really the same question that I started with, um, with Trip Stallings, um, Bonnie, is what did you set out to accomplish with this um, review and study of the curriculum that uh, private voucher schools are using? Well, I started to study vouchers in general. And so I didn't know what I would find. And what I found was, uh, I think, shocking and adds something new to the conversation. Uh, I pretty quickly discovered that a majority of the vouchers were going to schools using what they identified as a biblical worldview curriculum, using the Abeka textbooks. And I was curious as to what that was. And then I came across a, a critique of the biology textbook by a professor William Snyder at UNC School of Medicine. It was highly critical, and he said that it would not prepare these students for biology level courses and that public money should not be going to that curriculum. And then I discovered the, North, uh, the University of California court case and where that university does not accept the curriculum, not only in science, but also in history and in literature and in civics. And if that school has those high standards, what about other top universities? Right, and so, and, and, and so I, I said, so finding out these things, first of all, so, um, so how many, so what was the percentage, um, um, sort of what schools, Bonnie, that were using um, this type of uh, curriculum? Let's get that on, let's get that baseline first. All right, uh, in the sample we used, we looked at 75% of the schools re receiving about 75 of the, percent of the vouchers. I figured that was a large enough sample. Mm -hmm. And of those, 76.7% of the money was going to uh, voucher schools. And this represents by 2028, close to $1 billion will be going to those schools. Right. Uh, Dr. Kulik, you, I mean, you're, a, you're an educator. That's your mm -hmm. career. I mean, this is, um, you know, what's, um, I guess, what's the problem? I mean, if you, if you see it as a problem, which I know I think the, the, the League of Women Voters put this out because you're raising some concerns, and I think um, um, uh, Bonnie pointed out some concerns about whether children are being adequately prepared. From your perspective, sort of what is the concern about this particular curriculum that's, that's so apparently such a dominant player in the private schools? Well, first let me ground it in the idea that the League of Women Voters Education Action Team has position statements, and one of those statements um, is really about ensuring that all students have access to high-quality 
education that prepares them for citizenship in the 21st century. So when you look at the curriculum that we're talking about, it's really essential that you go back and say, based on what we know as best practice standards and scholarly advice and research in the education field, what should curriculum look like? And the fundamental um, core standards that you use, as well as the goals that are around not just content, but thinking skills, higher order thinking skills that we know all students need. Right just are not met by this curriculum. Right, and that's, and, and this, the, we, the North Carolina has a standard course of study that, that and, um, and actually it's interesting, the, like the Catholic schools that we, we talked about right. in this first segment, they actually follow and meet uh, guidelines, which mm -hmm. I think is, I want to make sure that our viewers um, understand, you, you're not, I mean, there's not suggesting that there's no place if, if parents, families want to have a, a sort of a re religious education for their children. Your suggestion is that it should be separated from, okay, this is what uh, sort of the, the curriculum should be. Is that our, I don't want to put words in your mouth. What, what is your, you're saying that this is, this is different than saying you've got religious instruction here and you've got science and math here. Is that? Well, even in the uh, University of California court case, that question came up and they said emphatically this is not about religion. In fact, they do accept textbooks that have religious content. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But uh, it should meet academic standards. It shouldn't have errors. It shouldn't have omissions of the subject. And it should exhibit academic rigor. And I think there's a larger point. I think the idea that this is not about religion, there's an accountability and a transparency um, standard that your previous guest mentioned that we're in full agreement with, that this is really taking a look at it and saying that those standards and the policy has to stipulate how those standards are going to be met. All schools should be held to the same academic standards with that foundational core that's an approved course of study or one that's equal if, to that. If they're receiving public dollars, Absolutely. which I think is what you Correct. mentioned, $1 billion, it does, I mean, it does beg the question, you know, shouldn't the state, if they're going to spend that kind of money, they have a constitutional obligation uh, to make sure kids receive a proper education. There's not a lot of standards um, in place right now around this curriculum. Is that what you found? That is what we found. Uh, for example, in the Abeka textbooks, I, I tried to find information about the authors. And I could find virtually no information. There's no standard. There are no standards I could find. And... Uh, the very few I did find information about, I could find no vitae or, or bios, and they were all from Pensacola Christian College, who is also the author of the textbooks. Right. A huge contrast to what goes into the North Carolina course of study, which is an amazing course right. of study. When I, when, I, and when I read through your report, I mean, because one of the things that I got is it felt like that some of the texts that, that were sampled and the other professors, <laughs> what they're, is they're, they're, they're shaping the content to fit the Bible versus saying that they, they can exist alongside of each other. Because I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm a person of faith. Mm -hmm. I, I think, obviously, you can, I think you can mm -hmm. reconcile both. Mm -hmm. But the problem with this curriculum and your views was that it's, it's, it's sort yeah. of, it's, it's narrow and it's, it's saying we're going to make this science fit. Right. Okay. And I think it's important to note that the voucher schools are not held to any of these standards. There's no curriculum standards. There's not standards about teacher quality or certification. Um, so when you look at that, there's a guarantee to our citizens. People should just be aware of that. Right, and, like, and we are, unfortunately, we are, we, are, we are out of time. It goes by fast. Take a, go to our website, viewers. You can, you can read the report. It's fascinating. I think mm -hmm. the, the people should know about it. I mean, if this is, this is your, our taxpayers' dollars, so they mm -hmm. should understand what's being taught. But thank you both for your work and for being thank here you, today. Steve. Thank you. <laughs> After the break, this week's Leadership Spotlight.
Each week, Education Matters spotlights individuals demonstrating exceptional leadership in education in North Carolina based on nominations from you, our viewers. This week, we spotlight Michelle Gordon, secondary interventionist in state and federal programs. Leadership Spotlight is brought to you by Participate, where we believe every student deserves equitable access to quality education. We have the kind of typical data, right? You have attendance, academics, and behavior. We look at student learning outcome data, we look at demographics data, but we're also starting to look at perception and process data. The beliefs that are in the building, the values that are in the building, do impact student achievement. So we're really having some courageous conversations about what are the perceptions of instruction? What are the perceptions of the school environment and the culture? The teams really work together to build the data literacy capacity of those team members, and then to also look school-wide, what is our present level of performance. It's a courageous conversation to talk about student outcomes. Uh, it can be emotionally charged. There's a skill set that's involved. So really building the toolkit of that uh, intervention team members to go out in the community and to have these kind of sometimes difficult conversations and just to explain what does that data mean and as far as at the end of the day, changing our practices to match student needs. If a school calls me and says, you know, we have an attendance problem, now it's a nice coaching conversation to say, what are your goals for attendance? Because we can work towards that. Um, and it's a lot more positive. And then so we start establishing what are their goals before we start really working on their problems and kind of backwards map it how we can get there. If you know someone that deserves to be recognized, please visit our website, ncforum.org, and click on Education Matters, and you'll find a link to nominate someone in your community. After the break, this week's final word. $1 billion, that's how much the General Assembly plans to spend in taxpayer funds for opportunity scholarships over the next 10 years. The state's private school voucher program clearly lacks any real accountability and transparency. You heard the researchers from NC State, they had to rely on the state's top voucher lobbying and advocacy group, Parents for Educational Freedom, to gain access to the schools they studied. Certainly with this level of state investment, we should not have to rely on school choice activists and lobbyists who frankly have a vested interest in casting the program in the very best light possible. The League of Women Voters report also raised some important questions about whether the state is meeting its constitutional obligation to provide access to a sound basic education by funding clearly religious curriculum that shapes what our students are learning that are receiving these vouchers. And then finally, there's the glaring gap in financial oversight that we've reported on the show. Um, the state's largest recipient of voucher funds, Trinity Christian in Fayetteville, where the son of the school director was convicted of embezzlement, yet still teaches and coaches at the school while serving prison sentence on the weekends. And just last week, the headmaster of another voucher school surrendered to authorities in Rutherford County, charged with embezzling more than $100,000. None of this has spurred a single action by the General Assembly toward more accountability and transparency. Why not? The only standard that seems to matter to lawmakers is that these schools are not public schools. 
the General Assembly owes it to the taxpayers to understand what $1 billion is buying and who is benefiting from it, because in the end, it's supposed to be our students. That's it for this week's show. Next week, we're going to look at some more of the happenings in the General Assembly. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next week.